Atheism would require you to look your son in the eyes and say with a straight face, Zeke, you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, all of this, Zeke, is in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. It's an illusion, an illusion, Michael, or Zeke. Yeah, you, I mean, it's, you, it's, you a, it's a horrible, horrible way to parent, by the way. Horrible way to parent. Well, it, it's actually a non-existent way to parent because, again, it so contradicts our intuitions. Nobody really believes it, even if they believe also, it and write books about it. Also, if it were true, it. what would it matter what I told him? Why would I tell him anything? I don't know. Well, hello and welcome to another baffling, bewildering, and unexplainable episode of On the Journey that will leave you asking, was it all an illusion? I don't know. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. Visit us at chnetwork.org and especially come check out our online community, which is where we have all kinds of conversations, much like the one we're about to have. Uh, again, community.chnetwork.org. Ken, you ready to dive right in? Yes, and I... I'm hoping our conversation will not be an illusion, at least not entirely elusive or uh, yeah, elusive. That's, that's a good adjective you could use too. Okay. Yeah. Let me hit it. I want to begin. In fact, since we have a lot to cover today, I want to just go straight to it. I want to begin by reading again, a quotation from atheist philosopher of mind, John Searle that, that we've read previously. There is exactly one overriding question in contemporary philosophy. I love that. There's one overriding question question. How do we fit in? How can we square this self-conception of ourselves as mindful, meaning-creating, free, rational, etc. agents with a universe that consists entirely of mindless, meaningless, unfree, non-rational, brute, physical particles? How do we fit in, he says. Okay, in, in, in this series that we've titled Wizard of, Oz, Wizard of Oz Apologetics, what you and I have been doing um, really is performing an internal critique of the atheist materialist worldview. And what I mean by that is this. We've stepped inside the atheist worldview. We've left our worldview as Christians. Step inside the atheist worldview. Take a look around. In other words, we're asking the question, what would the universe really be like if it were true that nothing, that the universe consists entirely of mindless, meaningless, unfree, non-rational, brute physical particles. What would the universe really be like? We've tried to think through some of the implications of that worldview, and we're asking the question that John Searle asks, that is, how do we fit in? Um, or put in another way, how does an atheist, on atheistic grounds, on materialist grounds, how does an atheist account for many of the most fundamental aspects of our experience as human beings. And in the previous episodes, we've been looking at some of them. We've looked at human worth and dignity, the sense we have of having special worth and equal worth. We've looked at morality, the intuition that we have that right and wrong are real, that moral law actually exists. We've looked at human rights, and we've looked at meaning and purpose, the sense that we have that life has meaning. Um, today, we want to talk about 
consciousness. So we're going to go a step deeper, really. That is the strong intuition that you and I have that each of us are someone, (laughs) you know, being conscious beings, conscious that we are someone. And I want to begin by referring to a television show. Some years back, my son uh, instigated this in my life. I, I watched a show on HBO that was titled True Detective. The show stars Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson as two homicide detectives for the Louisiana State Criminal Investigations Division. That is um, Rust Cole and Marty Hart. Matthew McConaughey plays Rust Cole. Woody Harrelson playing Marty Hart. Okay, in the very first episode, Matt, these two are, they're working together for the first time. They're investigating this gruesome occult murder that has taken place. Um, They're driving down the highway. There's chit-chatting, getting to know one another, you know, shooting the breeze. And suddenly I find myself watching and listening to literally the most philosophically strange conversation I have ever witnessed in a TV show, that's for sure. Maybe anywhere. Um, Here's the conversation. Marty first, that is Woody Harrelson, uh, speaking to Rust. So what do you believe? Rust, that's Matthew McConaughey. I consider myself a realist, but in philosophical terms, I'm what is called a pessimist. I think human consciousness was a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. Listen to that again. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. He's referring to consciousness. Marty responds, Huh, that sounds god-awful, Rust. Rust. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self, this accretion of sensory experience and feeling, programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody, when in fact everybody's nobody. To which Marty responds, I wouldn't go around spouting that I was you. (laughs) People around here don't think that way. I don't think that way. Rust. I think the honorable thing for the species to do is to deny our programming, stop reproducing, walk hand in hand into extinction, one last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. Marty. So what's the point of getting out of bed in the morning? Rust. I tell myself I bear witness, but the real answer is that it's obviously my programming and I lack the constitution for suicide. (laughs) You ever heard a conversation like that in a TV show? Uh, not very many of them, uh, but he just basically laid out a bunch of the dilemmas we've been discussing over the course of the past several episodes and uh, really hints, more than hints, at the aspect of this question that we're really digging into today. Yeah. The question yeah, of the, consciousness. Yeah, because, okay, it's a, de- it's a depressing conversation. I mean, you hear it in Woody Harrelson's voice when he's like, man, I mean, remember, they're in Louisiana, and I'm not going to try and fake a Louisiana accent, but he's like, man, pe- people around here don't think that way, you know? I'm, I'm not sure you want to go You're around You're not going to try Matthew McConaughey? I mean, Matthew no. McConaughey's a Texas, but I, you know, he, I could see him doing Louisiana. A slow, drawly, well, existential you can pessimist. Try. No, you I'm can not try if you try. like. Okay, well, it's a depressing conversation, But even more depressing, Matt, and this is what leads into our conversation today, is the fact that if the fact that if what atheists like Richard Dawkins, John Searle, and so many others, if what they say is correct, 
And you and I, as evolved products of an entirely material universe, consist entirely, you and I, of mindless, meaningless, unfree, non-rational, brute physical particles. If there is no spark of the divine within us, no soul, no spirit, if atheism is true, then what Detective Cole is saying here is absolutely right. In that case, we really are, and I quote him again, things that, lab things that labor under the illusion of having a self, programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody, when in fact, everybody is nobody. And I want to expand on this a little bit, because as with the other topics that you and I have looked at over the past weeks, this is something that prominent atheist philosophers and scientists admit all the time. In other words, I'm not putting words in their mouths. I'm, I'm not saying this is what atheism would imply. Atheistic philosophers and scientists admit the same. After all, it follows inescapably from the worldview, from a materialist, consistent materialist worldview. Take Daniel Dennett, for instance. He's one of the most famous philosophers now. Dennett has written extensively on the subject of human consciousness and viewed from a consistently materialist vantage point. Dennett's conclusion is that consciousness, human consciousness, is a, quoting him now, bag of tricks that the brain plays on us, okay? Human consciousness, he says, is a bag of tricks that the brain is playing on us. Human consciousness, he says, is a fiction, and I'm quoting him again. It's an illusion, I'm quoting him a third time. Um, in other words, human consciousness, Dennett is saying, is a case of, of electrochemical processes taking place in a brain, making it seem as though there is this self that is somehow separate from these physical processes. You know, like, like, um, like Rust Cole said, you know, that evolution created this aspect of nature that went beyond nature and it's, it, it is not a good thing, he says, you know. That's it. Electrochemical processes, Dennett is arguing, in our brains, neurons firing physical processes are making it seem as though there is this self that is somehow separate from those physical processes, that I'm, that I'm me, I'm not just what's something happening in a brain. It, it, those physical processes make it seem as though I see you now at the other end of this camera. Make it seem as though I hear your voice when you speak, okay? Make it seem as though I intend, when I'm finished recording today, to grab something to eat downstairs. Um, make it seem as though I remember that day in high school when such and such happened. When in reality, Dennett says, in reality, nothing is going on except electrochemical processes, the firing of neurons, physical things are happening in a brain projecting this illusion for me <laughs> that I see these things, that I smell these things, that I hear these things, that I remember these things, that I intend these things. Dennett says that we do have souls, so there's no problem with that. It's just that our souls are not what we imagine them to be. He says our souls are, quoting him again, trillions of cellular robots, little biochemical machines, each doing what it must do in accordance with strict physical laws. Our souls, in short, are made of matter. You have a soul, Matt, but it's made of matter. Now, made of specifically little biochemical nanotechnological robots. You're going to get all the wrong people Googling this video if you start talking about us all being, you know, full of nanotech robots in our bloodstreams. 
I mean, I'll probably get a bunch of like geek geek engineers or something or something. Well, anyway, tinfoil hat right. crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, remember, though, I'm quoting Daniel Dennett, one of the most prominent philosophers, um, atheist philosophers writing today. Okay. A clever critic listening to what Dennett said about consciousness, he responded by saying that, uh, that, that Dennett's con- conception reminds him of the story of the emperor's new clothes. He says, except it's, it's in the reverse. In, instead of the, the emperor existing and his clothes being an illusion, with Dennett's perspective, um, the clothes are what exist and the emperor is the, illu- is the illusion. You know, in other words, all the appearances of a human person are present, but the human person really is not present. There really is no self. Now, when Dennett heard this uh, critique, his reply was, exactly. So, again, he's I like have so many accepting, questions. accepting this fully. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So if how does Dennett then rationalize the appearance of someone critiquing his argument? Does he well, say, in a in a in a in a universe mm-hmm. where we have there is no selves, then all we have is perhaps these biochemical reactions playing devil's advocate to one another. It is not actually me coming up with an argument and another person arguing against it, but even that is well, itself is an illusion. I mean, you see what I'm asking? Well, yeah, I see what you're asking, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give a short answer, and I'm gonna kind of defer it to next week when we talk about free will. Because this is getting into the question of freedom, but I mean, you know, he basically would say, yeah, you know, the the person's self is is an illusion. It's electrochemical processes in the brain responding to his um to his idea. But let's hold off because that gets into free will too. And I, I kind of want to cloister the. I know the how I get out of this guy's class. Today. I would say, you know, I know you think that I didn't <laughs> answer the questions that you assigned in this essay correctly, but that's yeah. just the illusion that you have in your mind. I was That's there right. in all those classes, Professor. That's right. That's right. I don't know. Okay, and Dennett's not the only one. I want to push it a little bit further and make sure you understand it's not just Dennett. Molecular biologist Francis Crick, who was instrumental in, in uh, discovering the, the human genome. Francis Crick is even more blunt. In his book with the title, The Astonishing Hypothesis, Crick writes, and I'm looking at you, Matt, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Now, because this is so entirely contrary to our intuition as human persons made in the image and likeness of God, it really takes some thought to enter into it and and to really have these words sink in. I mean, you are in fact... No more than, Matt, Swaim, no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. I mean, p- ponder the implications, because this is what is entailed in a consistent materialist worldview. This is what is true if atheism is true. Then why should I get in trouble for anything? Like, honestly, like, why would I be... I mean, this goes back to the question of morality, but why should I be in trouble? I didn't do this. A series of electrochemical reactions and nano, like, exactly right. machines and, well, did these that's things. Well, that's because, that's because all the subjects What if a few of those biochemical, like, little cells are innocent? You want to you blame the whole— Innocent is—well, innocence not a word you can use either. I guess either, innocent or, 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 or moral, yeah, moral well, I mean, framework of vocabulary. This is where all— 
this is where all the subjects we've discussed and all the subjects we're going to discuss, yeah, they all begin to overlap with one another. You're right. We're talking about freedom for a moment. Now you're talking about morality. I mean, really, if it's just the behavior of nerve cells and electrochemical processes in a brain, then, you know, who can, who can call you bad or guilty or anything like that? Um, or if I cause brain... harm or, or hurt. Yeah. My okay, defense but could another... be like, well, that was just the illusion of hurt. All these things start to make I, I don't know incredibly nonsense. But uh, pulling this together, in other words, what I'm saying here is that if the worldviews held by Dennett and Crick and others are true, then even our sense of personal identity. I mean, we've talked about the value and dignity of human life. We've talked about morality. We've talked about human rights. We've talked about whether or not life has meaning. But this goes deeper. Even our sense of personal identity, my sense of being me, your sense of being you is nothing more than an illusion that is being generated by electrochemical processes taking place in brains sitting in our respective skulls. I mean, so in essence, here you and I are dressed in our fine, you know, human garments. Um, everybody watching this video can see our, our, our wonderful personalities. They can say, oh, look at Matt. He's a funny guy. Look at his sharp comments. Oh, listen to these guys sharing their ideas, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, lo and behold, there's actually no one here. No one here. It's just machinery. And when I think about this, you know, I've often wondered how Dennett and Crick, who, who say these things, I wonder how they look at the people that they love. I mean, do they really look at them as no more than biological machines? I mean, I think their kids come running into the room, you know, to show them something they've done at school, you know, some project, art project, or run into the room crying because a friend has treated them badly or they've fallen down and they've hurt their knees. I mean, do they really believe that the individual personalities of their kids, um, their unique ways of expressing themselves, their emotions, their memories, their plans, their reactions, do they really, I mean, do, do Crick and Dennett really believe that everything their son or daughter is, everything that makes them them, you know, everything unique about them is really no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules? This makes me extremely curious about what kind of toast they would give at their child's wedding. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, what do you even say? Yeah. Or, or what do you even think? Or... You come home and your spouse asks you about work and you say, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I mean, what, what do you, what do you say? I mean, or your spouse comes at you with emotions and you oh. think to yourself, well, I know that she knows that I think that she's just a series of electrochemical reactions, but I'm going to have to put the illusion on here of pretending like I believe that she's more yeah. so that she doesn't have the illusion of sadness or detachment or loneliness in my presence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know that nothing exists but particles and therefore I know that she is the product of the collisions of particles. And she and I know knows everything... enough about my work to know <laughs> that that's what I think that she is too. Yeah. And so she's telling me about something that's important to her now, but she must know that that I think in the grand scheme that it's nothing and that she in fact is nothing and no one. 
Yeah. Okay. Or even to say the fact that I think that is an illusion. Yeah, it's like a hall of mirrors. Yeah, it's it's The the more deeply you probe it, the the more it's a hall of mirrors. Okay, but you haven't proved anything yet. This is the primary complaint that I hear when I say things like the kinds of things I'm saying here today. You haven't proven anything yet. Great. You've shown us that a consistent materialist has no basis in his worldview for believing that you know, th- th- that we really have high special value and that morality is a real thing and that human rights really are inalienable. Um, sure, you have shown us that consistent materialist has no basis in his worldview for believing that his sense of personal identity is really anything more than chemistry and physics, that consciousness is anything more than a grand illusion generated by a pile of meat that we call the brain. And sure, You guys have stated a number of times that if God exists and if we are living souls created in the image and likeness of God, then all of these problems disappear. Then the intuitions we have could actually be true. But you haven't proven that God exists. You haven't proven that we're creating the image of God. All you've done is stated that if this were true, (laughs) then what we seem to intuitively believe about ourselves could be true. Well, you guys, Matt, Ken, maybe we have to simply face the fact that none of this is true. That morality and value, human rights, meaning and purpose, and even consciousness, even our sense of ourselves as being ourselves is an illusion. Maybe this is simply how things are. Okay, that's the complaint that comes. And to that complaint, I wanna respond with three points. First, first very quickly, you're right. We haven't proved anything, but I'll, I'll throw in the word yet because we're going to be moving deeper in the weeks to come. But you're right. We haven't proved anything yet. Okay. Point number two in my response is this. Evangelism, apologetics is about persuasion and persuasion involves all sorts of things that fall short of proofs. I mean, a, a, a personal testimony of faith in Christ can persuade Billy Graham's sermon can persuade. The the mere reading of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection can persuade. The lives of the saints often persuade. I think of Mother Teresa's life. She persuaded many simply by what she did and who she was. Arguments for the historicity of the gospel accounts or the historicity of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ can be persuasive, and yet none of these in the strict sense are proofs. So persuasion doesn't always have to be in the form of a proof. Okay, that's my second point. But the third point that I want to make, and the one we're going to hang out on for a little while, is this. I really believe that the argument being made here today about consciousness is more powerful than it might at first appear. And let me elaborate on that by talking a moment about Thomas Nagel. And in 2012, Thomas Nagel, a very, very well-known atheist philosopher, I, I believe he's professor at NYU, he may still be, he came out with a book, this is 2012, he came out with a book titled Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. Okay. Well, gosh, if you title a book that, you don't even have to put anything in it. It could be blank. You'll sell a thousand <laughs> yeah. of those. A, a long title, but a very powerful title. I mean, especially because, again, Professor Nagel is an atheist. 
In fact, Nagel has said a number of times, he doesn't want for a God to exist. He not only doesn't believe in God, he doesn't want there to be a God. He doesn't want to be morally accountable to a God. He's an atheist. And yet, he writes this book. And he writes this book because he's become weary of materialist philosophers and scientists like himself. He's become weary of them forcefully asserting that human consciousness can be explained as reducible to electrochemical processes in the brain. He's tired of his partners in crime, as it were, atheist philosophers and scientists. He's tired of them assuring us that this is the case, insisting that this must be the case, after all, because after all, we all know that nothing exists but the material world, okay? You understand the argument? Hey, we all know that nothing exists but the material world, and therefore consciousness must be reducible to material processes. He's, he's tired of, of his atheist friends asserting this and insisting on this. And in this book, what Nagel does is he argues that consciousness, especially the subjective experience we have of being conscious of ourselves as individual persons, with our own individual desires, fears, loves, memories, intentions, all of that, he says consciousness is such a fundamental characteristic of who we are as human beings. And it stands out, these are his words, it stands out so conspicuously as being something distinct from matter that he says it can no longer be merely asserted that consciousness is explainable in terms of material processes. He's basically saying, okay, look, you're, you're insisting constantly that everything can be explained in terms of particles and material. Everything is reducible to physical processes and that consciousness is reducible as well. He says, look, the more I think about consciousness, the more I think about what it is and how distinctly non-material it seems to be, that's not going to do any longer. You need to explain how consciousness could possibly have evolved in a universe in which nothing exists but material substances. This is what he says. Back to McConaughey's argument, right? Nature creating something outside of nature. Yeah, nature created something separate from nature. And he said, in fact, McConaughey says, you know, that evolution made a misstep. You know, evolution somehow created something separate somehow from nature. This is what Just to make the distinction by McConaughey's character said that. That's going to be a distinction that becomes more important as this episode goes on, I assure you. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, his character, Russ Cole, said that. Now, here's what Nagel says. This is how he explains his position. Consciousness is the most conspicuous obstacle to a comprehensive naturalism that relies only on the resources of physical science. The existence of consciousness seems to imply that the physical description of the universe, in spite of its richness and its explanatory power, is only part of the truth. If we take this problem seriously and follow out its implications, it threatens to unravel the entire naturalistic world picture. Now, Nagel, just to so that he doesn't seem like entirely like an outlier out there who's just like some crazy guy on the on the fringe, he's not the only atheist who struggles with how to account for human consciousness in terms of consistent materialism. I mean, atheistic philosophers and scientists, I mean, they mock Nagel, okay? They continue to speak with full, total assurance that human beings are nothing but matter from top to bottom, nothing but products of nature. At the same time, it's important to note that they continue to admit that they have no idea, not a clue, 
as to how consciousness could possibly arise from biological tissue. And I want to just quickly quote a few of them so you can hear it. For instance, Jeffrey Medell in his book, Mind and Materialism, this is what he said, the emergence of consciousness is a mystery and one to which materialism signally fails to provide an answer. And notice he doesn't say that it's a, that consciousness is a mystery, materialism has a tough time explaining it. He says, this is a mystery to which materialism signally fails to provide an answer. Another would be Jaguan Kim in his book, The Philosophy of Mind. He asked the question, and I'm quoting him now, how can a series of physical events, little particles jostling against one another, electric current rushing to and fro, how can this blossom into a conscience, into a conscious experience of me, you know, seeing this room that I'm in, you know, again, hearing myself speak, thinking right now as I speak to you about the time I was in first grade and I was sitting in the reading circle and whatnot. How can that be, he says. Jaguan Kim has absolutely no idea. One more would be Colin McGinn in his book, The Mysterious Flame. McGinn expresses absolute stupefaction, I mean, utter dumbfoundedness at the very idea that human consciousness could somehow arise from the mere jostling of atoms. This is what he writes. How can mere matter originate consciousness? How did evolution convert the water of biological tissue into the wine of consciousness? There's a little reference to John chapter two. Consciousness seems like a radical novelty in the universe. So how did it contrive to spring from, how, how did it contrive to spring into being from what preceded it? It strikes us as miraculous eerie, even faintly comic consciousness. How can mere matter originate consciousness? One Christian philosopher, J.P. Moreland, answers the question, well, it can't. In his book, The Recalcitrant Imago Dei, he writes, you start with matter, tweak it physically, and all you're going to get is tweaked matter. <laughs> you get matter, you tweak it, you're going to get tweaked matter. You're not going to get this th this first-person conscious awareness of that I am a self, I am a person, and I can remember my whole life, and I'm looking out at the world, and I'm thinking all these thoughts, and the same Listen, with you. I mean, at, Ken, least, if I, at least I think that's I, true of you. If I give you a bag of Legos, uh, you can only build stuff out of that bag of Legos. You can't use those Legos to generate a force field of other things, you know, outside of the Lego Unless your, you. Unless, your Unless your name, name is, is MacGyver. Unless your name is MacGyver. This is a good point. This is a great point. <laughs> and he can point. make an atom bomb out of Legos, so, right? I, I do have a question, and maybe you don't yeah. have an answer for this. Uh, so um, Nagel says that there must be something outside of pure materialism that accounts for consciousness. Uh, would he think that is just another realm of the scientific world, that it may be immaterial, but it's not personal yeah. and divine. Yeah, yeah, you're you're asking a good question, and uh, yeah, that's why he titled his book "Mind and Cosmos," because what he ends up suggesting, you know, he doesn't want to believe in God still. So what he ends up suggesting is the possibility that you have the material universe, and then you have mind. <laughs> Does Carl Sagan come existing, up in this at all? Does Carl Sagan come it, up anywhere in these? No. No, 
You know what? Actually, existing, but actually both existing he will come up. eternally. He will come up. Yeah. Okay. But uh, both of them existing e- e- eternally. You know, because he's simply thinking to himself, no, consciousness can't come from material. And so why not just face the fact that maybe there's another thing out there? Maybe the universe is comprised of cosmos, material, and mind, just eternally existing, but not coming from anyone, not coming from God, nothing like that. Okay. But the point is that he's hammering down is that consciousness strikes us as something explicitly non-material. It strikes us as something miraculous, or as uh, Colin McGinn said, faintly comic even. Okay, because of this, Nagel is willing to conclude that the materialist neo-Darwinian view of the universe is almost certainly false. And you're right, that's a really, really catching title. Consciousness seems to Nagel to present us with a recalcitrant fact, a fact that simply cannot be absorbed by the materialist worldview, cannot be explained in terms of a worldview that reduces everything to particles, and he insists and, and insists that nothing else uh, exists at all. Now, Nagel was totally aware when he wrote the book that the doubts that he was expressing about a pure, consistent materialism, that is, the doubts he was expressing about the ability of materialism to account for consciousness, would be received as pure heresy. He knew that. In fact, he he writes in his book, listen to this, I realize that such doubts will strike many people as outrageous, but that is because almost everyone in our secular culture has been browbeaten into regarding the reductive research program as as sacrosanct on the ground that anything else would not be science. I, 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 I gotta translate his language here. He says, what I'm saying here is gonna strike many as outrageous, but that's, be, that's only because in our secular world now, we have all been beaten over the head with this idea that it would not be science if everything is not reducible to material processes. And therefore, everything has to be reducible to material processes. There's so much packed into this that I, I think in a future episode, we may go off to talk about scientism. But essentially what Nagel is hitting on here, Matt, is a super critical point. On the grounds that anything else would not be science, okay? Okay, anything else would not be science. Modern science insists that everything must be explainable in terms of physical processes, okay? In other words, well, it wouldn't be science if God was in the picture or if anything other than material processes. Therefore, everything must be explainable in terms of material process. But of course, if God does exist, then everything might not be explainable in terms of physical processes. For instance, human consciousness. So what they are basically saying is, um, atheism must be true, because otherwise we can't do science. Uh, The materialist worldview must be true, and everything must be reducible, at least theoretically, to physical processes, Otherwise, we can't do science. Now, to me, one of the most mischievous sleight-of-hand tricks really to have ever been performed is this trick, the way in which materialism as a worldview, that is the philosophical worldview of materialism, has somehow been slipped into the modern consciousness on the pure white lab tail. I see what you did there, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Consciousness has been, okay, that... The sleight of hand, which I can't remember what it was now, but the sleight of hand is that the the philosophy of materialism has been slipped into our consciousness on the lab coat tails of science. 
So we look at scientists and we admire them and we look at the pure white lab coat, they're objective, all they care about is the facts and all they're doing. And so when they move beyond science and step over into philosophy and they tell us everything is material, nothing exists but the material universe and everything can be explained in terms of material, we go, oh, they must know. It'd be like, a, yeah, it'd be like, we'll be like all kinds of things, but uh, you know, the, the intellectually <laughs> honest like thing it. would be to say, well, um, commenting beyond that is actually, that's actually not my field. And so I'm not competent to comment on that, <clears throat> at least not in a professional capacity. I can only comment right. much like, you know, I'm able to comment on the workings of my favorite baseball team. I find it interesting and I'm willing to consider some theories about what should be done about it, but I ain't the coach, right? I'm not the manager. This is not my field of expertise. Right. Um, right. But yeah, it, but it also, um, it also kind of denies the origins of scientific inquiry itself. Because who is it that is the pioneers of science, kind of as we know it today, including of the scientific method? But it's all people of faith, um, often people of yeah. Catholic faith. Uh, I mean, they're whole bunch of craters on the moon named for Jesuit astronomers who are Catholic priests, yeah. right? And and much more. And their idea was um, the universe is ordered and intelligible and designed by someone who imbued it with meaning. And that's why we're going to study every aspect of it as we can. That's why Blessed Nicholas Steno decided he was going to study everything from shark teeth to stratigraphy, <laughs> right, uh, to everything. Uh, because they did because there was because there was this belief meaning. that it would make sense. There yeah, was this it was, belief that it would make sense. If it doesn't uh, make sense, then what's the point of doing science on it at all? I mean, all science is predicated on the opposite of this idea that we just heard earlier. It's predicated on the idea mm -hmm. that we can trust our senses, right? We can trust yeah. our sight and smell and touch uh it's predicated on that which is the opposite of this worldview over here that says you know i can't even remember how many philosophers ago you said that it's all just an illusion as it were yeah it, it, it was why do science scienti on an illusion? science arose within a christian worldview uh, by people who believed that the world was orderly that the word you used was um not not coherent but that it was um it was understandable. Intelligible. And you could study it. Yeah. It, it was intelligible. You could study it and it would make sense because it was created by God. And I've also read that it's interesting that science did not arise in the more in the Far East where a more mystical view of the universe, uh, you know, approached the universe as though it was pure mystery and therefore there's no reason to really study it because you can't get it. Yeah, anywhere. it's also interesting. And this gets back a little bit to um, some of the conversations you and I had about the. Uh, the Christian the forms of Christianity that you and I came from, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that would have had sort of faith alone and would have had almost like a fideistic approach to the created world. Um, those Christian traditions have have not produced, uh, you know, pioneering scientists uh, in the same classical way that that the Catholic tradition has because of its understanding of the harmony between faith and reason, because. I mean, mm -hmm. let's be honest, Ken. Some of the traditions that you and I came from were actually anti-intellectual on a couple of these points um, and uh, yes. would uh, flatly reject some certain scientific things uh, 
because they felt like it was a challenge to the creative mystery of God. Um, so, yeah, and again, this, I mean, gosh, when I grew up, we, we had kind of like a, a CIG version of church history, as my one professor told me, which is, I believe, I, everything I knew about the history of the Catholic Church was the Crusades, the Inquisition, and Galileo, right? That covered everything that there was to know about and, what happened between the apostles and the and Reformation. Even you, and not realizing... And even on those stuff. you didn't know, and even Sorry. on those you didn't know the truth. <laughs> right, <laughs> even right. Even on and, those you had caricatures fed to you. Yeah, and, and the yeah. caricature continues to exist to this day that says, well, the Catholic Church shouldn't have anything to say about this. The Catholic Church opposes inquiry in this area when, in fact, it's kind of like... Just like it's the cradle of the arts, it's the cradle of the sciences in so many ways too. So not to not to get okay. too far afield, but I feel like it's important to bring yeah. that up in this in this particular context. Yeah, good. Yeah. And what we are critiquing, of course, is an atheist or yeah, a materialist view of the universe. And I and I wanted to state clearly, science, of course, has not demonstrated that material that materialism is true. This is not something that science could, even in theory, ever demonstrate that nothing exists outside particles and whatnot. Um, and yet, and yet science, uh, that is atheistic science and philosophy has been able to slip this idea into the mind that science has shown that materialism is true. And therefore, everything is explainable in terms of material processes, consciousness included. And if we can't explain it now, just give us more time and we will explain it because everything is explainable in terms of particles. It's, it, it, it's just like that. And it and, and although it makes sense practically for a scientist to say, well, well, science is the exploration of the material world. I can't be doing science if I'm saying, well, it could have been a genie doing it or it could have been a fairy or it could be God. While there's a truth in that, it's false, it's false to move from science to, to the philosophy of materialism and insist that nothing exists but material substances. It, it's a false leap, and it's a very dangerous leap. Anyway, anyway, consciousness in Nagel's mind is something that is so conspicuously non-material that he's willing to throw this book out and to say, flat out, I'm not going to accept anymore you just telling me, you know, you guys just telling me that it can be explained in terms of material processes. You're going to have to explain, you're going to have to at least scratch the surface of explaining how something completely non-material would evolve from matter. Okay, Nagel is now, basically now, saying, you shouldn't make me accept scientific materialism on faith. That's right. Good. Ring the bells. You shouldn't make me on faith accept the philosophy of scientific materialism. You have to show me. Okay? Okay, so, so how does this apply to evangelism and apologetics? Um, here, here's how it applies for me. You know, I would think that at some point, the sheer weight of the implications of holding to a thoroughly materialistic view of the world would lead an atheist to take a second look. You know, um, most don't do that. And, and that's why we're performing this internal critique and trying to draw out these implications because many become atheists, but they never sit down and they say, what would a truly consistent materialist view of the universe lead to? What would it imply? Um, even human consciousness, it turns out, is an illusion. Even the sense I have of being someone. Um, and I'm wondering, you remember the game that we used to play in the swimming pool when we, were, when we were kids? And the game that maybe some of us who are still kids still play when we're in the swimming pool? You know how you take a, an inflated ball and you shove it down in the water and you try to sit on it? 
You try to balance on it, and you try to pretend to your friends like you're just sort of sitting there in the water. Did you ever do that? Ken, I did. Nobody, no, nobody knows what you're talking about, Ken. No one's ever done that? Okay. You push the ball down, you sit on the ball, and you try to pretend like you're just sitting there floating in the water. Okay. The thing is, your intention, and you have to work like crazy to keep yourself totally balanced on the ball. Well, this illustrates, in my mind, the situation of, uh, of those who deny the existence of God. Um, the kind of tension that they live in. The atheist is someone, I believe, who lives in continual tension between who they really are as God's image and likeness and what they know to be true, their intuitions about themselves and about other people and about life in general, a tension between that and what they are saying about the nature of the universe in which we live. For instance, just to run through the things we've covered, the atheist knows in his bones that human beings possess unique value, high value, and equal value, and yet his atheism requires him, if he wants to be logical, to say a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, they're all mammals, we don't make any distinction between them. Um, the atheist knows that right and wrong are real, and he lives as though right and wrong were real all day long, almost every day, and yet his atheism again if he wanted to be logically rigorous, would require him to say morality is an illusion. It's just relative from person to person, society to society, who's to judge? The atheist knows that, I'll just make it more personal, the atheist knows that his daughter is someone, that his son is someone, and yet his atheism requires him, atheism would require you to look your son in the eyes and say with a straight face, Zeke, you, your joys, your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, all of this, Zeke, is in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. It's an illusion, an illusion, Michael, or Zeke. Yeah. You, I mean, it's, you, it's, a, it's a horrible, horrible way to parent, by the way, horrible way to parent. Well, it's actually a non-existent way to parent because, again, it so contradicts our intuitions. Nobody really believes it, even if they believe also, it and write books about it. Also, if it were true, it. what would it matter what I told him? Why would I tell him anything? I don't know. I don't Here's know. where, it, see, it expands out again. It's the Hall of Mirrors. Well, so the reason this applies to, in my mind to apologetics and evangelism is, is that I believe that, at least with many, being confronted, being challenged by the logical implications of the atheist materialist worldview this is something that can lead someone who says there is no God to think again about it, to wonder at least, well, if like Nagel wonders, an atheist wonders if there isn't something more than just matter. It can open a person to the Christian worldview. It can persuade them. And in that sense, it can be a form of evangelism. And of course, it has to be done in a loving way, in a kind way. It has to be done from within the context of a friendship. I mean, at least the one-on-one, -on -one. you know, we can make, we can create talks like this and send it out. But if I'm talking to someone one-on-one, -on -one, I'm going to be very careful about how I approach it and how I do it. But, but I believe that this can be a form of evangelism. Um, some are going to be willing to bite the bullet in a hardcore way and just accept the fact that according to their atheist worldview, no human value or dignity, no human rights, no moral law, no meaning or purpose. And yeah, even my sense of self is just this fiction being created by a, this brain. It's just bubbling up from the brain. Um, so 
some atheists will bite the bullet and they will say with Detective Cole in that show, True Detective, we are things that labor under the illusion of having a self, this accretion of sensory experience and feeling, programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody when in fact everybody's nobody. But I also believe that when faced with the implications, many may wish to entertain second thoughts on the whole thing. All right, so since you brought in Matthew McConaughey's Detective Rust Cole from True Detective, at the end I have a Matthew yeah. McConaughey counterpoint to some All of right. this. Did you ever see the movie Contact? Um, yeah, I did. Yeah, so Long time in ago. it, Jodie Foster, you may, right? Yeah, Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey. Now, you, Matthew yeah. McConaughey, you may recall, was her love interest. Yeah, and he's like there, a was, young, like a... He's like a young, like spiritual leader kind of guy. He's a Christian philosopher. Okay. Um, he refers to himself, I believe, as a man of the cloth without the cloth. Uh, but as he's talking in some of these lectures he's giving and some of the conversations he's having with Jodie Foster, he says things like, are we happier? Is the world fundamentally a better place because of science and technology? We shop at home, we surf the web, and at the same time we feel emptier, lonelier, and more cut off from each other than at any other time hmm. in human history. And he goes on to say, uh, in a different part of the movie, just to follow up with that idea. Ironically, the the thing that people are most hungry for, meaning, is the one thing science hasn't been able to give them. Sure, what kind of counterpoint? But he goes on to say, even so, so, someone challenges him, well, are you against technology? He says, I'm not against technology, doctor. I'm against the men who deify it at the expense of human truth. And the same could be said for any of the sciences. But, uh, you know, what yeah. struck me with that... You know what struck me with that original quote you read there? He was a man of the cloth without the cloth. Um, in a consistently atheist worldview, he he would be a man of the cloth without the man. <laughs> oh, no, that's the perfect. Emperor, the reverse of the emperor has the no clothes. The clothes have again. no emperor. What's interesting, by the way, uh, this character, Palmer, Palmer Joss, that McConaughey plays, mm -hmm. um, the movie Contact was written by uh, Carl Sagan, who was a very complex agnostic uh, mm -hmm. who believed that you could neither disprove nor prove the existence of God. So I remember at the end of the movie, Jodie Foster like goes to heaven or someplace and meets her father. It's I think the correct movie. answer is, or someplace, according yeah. to the mythology of the movie. Uh, you know, this has very, been a very Matthew McConaughey-themed episode of On the Journey. A, a man of the cloth without the, the man. Man of the cloth without the man. I should have chosen a different adjective to start this episode off. I should have said another all right episode of, uh, <laughs> of On the Journey. Well, well, anyway, yeah, it's been good. We'll, we'll pick up again ne next week as we go like two steps deeper down the path. Really? Because this pile of chemicals, this pound of meat in my head is just exhausted it, going through some of this. It, it gets worse. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. But, uh... We have much more to say on this topic. And if you have more to contribute to the conversation, please do uh, check us out at chnetwork.org. If you are processing these questions and they are making you think about your life in new ways, we'd love to help you at the Coming Home Network. Um, and uh, by all means, come check out our online community, community.chnetwork.org. And if you want to make sure we keep on doing more and more episodes, uh, please consider going to chnetwork.org donate to support our work. Thanks so much. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, thank you again. We'll talk to you Good next day week. Good day to you, sir.